Hello and welcome to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. We have made it through the regular season and all that is left before the playoff field is set and bowl season begins is championship weekend in college football. Well, before that, the coaching carousel is spinning like mad with hirings and firings. Joining me to talk about it all is Stuart Mandel from The Athletic. We talk about Hugh Freeze being hired by Auburn. Who got the better coach? Wisconsin with Luke Fickle or Nebraska with Matt Rule? We dig into the downfall of Stanford and the resignation of David Shaw with a little inside baseball on how Stu and I both handled the news that broke at an ungodly hour last Saturday. Then we do talk about championship week and playoff scenarios. If USC wins on Friday, there's not much to debate, but if not, maybe Ohio State, probably Ohio State, maybe maybe Alabama. What about Tennessee? Thanks for listening to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and just about anywhere you get your pods. If you like what you hear, please give us a good review and rating. It helps college football fans find us, and it helps us find more college football fans. And away we go. Joining me this week on the podcast with plenty of to talk about, coaching changes, college football playoff, things along those lines, is the great Stu Mandel. Stuart, thank you so much. For joining me today, Stuart uh, is the grand poobah of college football at The Athletic, um, and you know his work and has been re- reading him for years, and of course, he often comes on this show, and I yell at him for his coaching rankings, uh, his coach rankings. That's been- Oh my gosh. You, you uh, hmm. In hindsight, you were definitely right about Harbaugh. I wonder we'd have to go back and read Thank you. I, yeah. I very much, I don't want to, I, I didn't, I wasn't going to bring that up. Well, maybe I was going to bring that up, but I do think it's important to, you know, again, big picture here, Stu. Let's not, you know, just change with the wind every couple of years. That being said, you, you've been, you know, relentless on the Mac Brown bandwagon. <laughs> uh, That's not looking as I, good. That, that was looking better two weeks ago. Okay, fair enough. Um, all right, let's get into what's been going on the last couple of days. Um, to there's a, there's a, again a lot of coaching stuff, and I don't want to get too bogged down in it. But I, I think we do have to hit freeze, and then I want to touch on because you were there, and I was one of the few people on the East Coast up at night when David Shaw retired uh, at, at Stanford on Saturday or resigned at Stanford. He, he did not use the word retired; he resigned from that job. Um, so let's talk about freeze though. Because I, I don't think it was any surprise. I think it was a little surprising that it wasn't Lane Kiffin, but I don't think it was a big surprise that it became you freeze as plan 1A, let's say, at Auburn. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I, I think he'll probably do well there. I, you know, I think, he again, he was, a, he was a solid plan 1A. What do you think about you freeze back in the SEC? I think it was going to happen at some point. Somebody was going to do it. Um I was actually surprised. I mean, it worked out for the best, but that Tennessee didn't um, consider him more. But when they hired Josh Heupel, um, you know, there are obviously there's baggage. I mean, there's no other way to put it. There's baggage. Um, I've kind of been in this point in my career, lost the ability to have outrage over things like this. Um, I think Art Bryles being, you know, in a different uh, category. Um, 
but I get it. I get why there would be controversy. Um, but like I said, if it wasn't Auburn, it was going to be somebody else. He's just too good of a coach who's won. Um, you know, look what he's done at Liberty. Uh, and I think what makes this one particularly intriguing is that if you remember, uh, if you were following these programs at that time, Hugh Freeze was the thorn in Nick Saban's side for three years to the point where Nick's, I mean, it's funny how this all worked out, given we think Lane Kiffin was the other guy at Auburn. I mean, Nick Saban brought in Lane Kiffin as OC in large part because he wanted something like what Hugh Freeze was running. Um, you know, he saw what it was doing to his defenses and he wanted something too. And that, of course, led to the monster that Alabama's offense became. So now he's got, you know, Kiffin still in his division, but now Hugh Freeze is coaching his arch rival. And I'm fascinated to see how that plays out. So you mentioned something about, um, you're right. I, I think ultimately Freeze has shown himself to be a good recruiter and a good coach. I, listen, I know that things went really weird down the stretch at Liberty this year. But the fact of the matter is he got Liberty to bowl games almost every year. You know, he turned Malik Willis into a guy who got drafted in the third round. So, you know, at a place like Liberty where you're not necessarily going to be, you know, assumed to win, he even won at a place like Liberty. So I think that's important. I think it's important to show that you can win in, in multiple places. You, outrage is the word. And I, 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 I may have planted that word in your head because when I sent you the rundown, I used, I used that word. Because it's the word that I've been toying with for the last 24 hours, and that is, so I'm with you, Stu, and and this is not just me in college football, but sort of in life. You've known me for a while. Like, I'm a pretty even-keeled guy, I think. Right. Like, Like, I just don't get outraged about much. There's a few things over the last few years, but not that much. Um so, like, I mean, I, how is this worse than when Louisville brought back Bobby Petrino, a guy who burned them once already and had had to me, you know, like I'm not going to compare, you know, I'm not going to play which which was morally more wrong or right than the other. But I mean, Bobby Petrino got fired from Arkansas because he gave his mistress a job on the staff and then lied about the whole situation. And he got another job and then he got another job after that. So it's hard. Hard for me to sit here and say, how dare Auburn hire Hugh Freeze? Yeah, and I'm in that same boat. And and again, if you want to be outraged at me for not being outraged, I guess that's fine. Um, I, I also am, and this sounds like super, you know, cynical, but like these guys are football coaches. Like I've always been a little skeptical of the whole like molder of men. And listen, I, I if you are a coach of... 18 to 22 year olds, I think you should set a good example for them. Generally speaking, like there is a, an, an element of coach being something more than just someone who, who, who does X's and O's at the college level. And you have to build culture like f- to be successful. So that is part of your job. But like you're not Father Flanagan here, which maybe is a more appropriate analogy for freeze than most coaches. But like like you're just being paid to win and ultimately you will be fired if you don't win. So all the other stuff that we like to talk about molder of men and builder of culture, that stuff all gets thrown out the window if you don't win. And we overlook a lot of things if you do win. So let's not play. Let's not, let's not kid ourselves here. So you freeze a good coach. 
He fits what Auburn needs, so he's going to get to coach Auburn, and he'll probably be about as successful, I would guess, as Gus Malzahn was, because ultimately, and I'm going to steal this from Andy Staples because he talked about this on his podcast as I was as I was going, coming in this morning. Those guys, like like Malzahn, had a good run at if if Freeze did. Nothing more than what Malzahn did. This would be a good run, I think, at Auburn. They basically hire and and Gus and Hugh are buddies. They basically right. just hired a different version of Gus. I think that the difference between Freeze and Gus is that I mean I'm old enough to remember when Gus was considered a a, a revolutionary, right? In the hurry up right. offense, he wrote a book about it, and certainly that. Uh, that kick six game um, while we all remember it for the, the play at the end, obviously I remember that the, the pop pass to tie the game was like, Whoa, what was that? Right. <laughs> um, as the years went on, he didn't seem to evolve in any way. Um, I think Hugh freeze is a coach whose offense is going to be constantly changing and evolving with the times. And, you know, I think he can, I think I could be totally wrong. Obviously you never get these things right. I thought, Scott Frost was going to win a Big Ten title at Nebraska. Um, I think Hugh Freeze can get Auburn. How do I say this? I don't know if he'll take them to a national title game like Gus Malzahn did, but I think he can get them to be able to win to do what no Auburn coach seems to be able to do and win at a high level consistently, rather than they have this great year and then they go back to mediocrity immediately. Yeah, less volatility at Auburn, though. Would it be Auburn if it, there was less volatility at Auburn? I think that, that you it's know, hard to picture. Yeah, yeah, they sort of have the chaos gene in, in them, so it, it, it. And he will create controversy, right? The difference between him and Lane Kiffin, who at one time was that kind of lightning rod, is that Lane Kiffin has learned how to use social media better than any coach in America, like to his advantage. And Hugh Freeze sometimes gets himself in trouble on social media. I saw that at his press conference, he was directly asked about the possibility of giving up control of his mm-hmm. Twitter account, mm-hmm. which is, you know, not the first time I think that's come up in a press conference. So, like, he himself will inject drama into the Auburn situation. When we talk about, you know, outrage and freeze in his past and, and you talk about social media and the last thing he did to, to, to get himself in, to step in at liberty was DMing a woman who has um, had a lawsuit settlement with the school uh, over sexual assault allegations and like the simple fact that he like reached out to this and this. And so I want to frame that. That's the that's one of the latest things that, that became a, a, a talking point. It became a problem for freeze and vetting all that stuff. You can again, you can nitpick with the vetting process, but vetting all that stuff is one of the things that gave Auburn a little bit of pause. Mm-hmm. So it was. How would I put this? My big problem with Freeze is maybe not so much the behavior it is. Can I trust this guy to not do something that will make us, that will embarrass us? Like, I I think that's the big, not, not to say that I wouldn't have hired him, but like, it was such a dumb thing for him to do to insert himself into that situation back with the, you know, this woman at Liberty, but even reaching out and and that my, my biggest problem is, and I, I told other people this, it's like, like, I, I think I would be so worried about him doing something like that again, that 
on principle alone, I might not hire him. Just just like, hey, man, I can't trust you. I can't trust you to not do some dumb stuff. So listen, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. I, I you know, I, I don't. I think he's a good coach, and I think he will probably do good things at Auburn. And again, he was also the polar opposite of what they just had, too. Like they they went right back to again, sort of what not just a Gus Malzahn type coach, but hey, we tried something a little outside the box with Brian Harson. That definitely didn't work. So let's go get an SEC guy. Which and nobody likes SEC guys like SEC guys. Don't you get the sense that it's a completely different situation? I mean, I'm really surprised that Deion Sanders has not gotten more traction with jobs like Auburn. And I think that for whatever reason, there's more of a uh, what if he embarrasses us concern with him than there is with Hugh Freeze, which doesn't make much sense to me, but probably exists. So, no, I, I am not. I actually, I guess, have been a little on the other side of this where a lot of the conversation has been with some of my colleagues who have been sort of anxious or not anxious, but eager to see Dion or, or a little more enthusiastic about Dion going right to a power five job. And he might like he, this Colorado thing sounds very real, but I have thought that programs like Auburn and Georgia tech to a certain degree, but that that's a big jump to go all the way from the swack. Like I know Dion is not your normal coach, but there is still a big gap in what it means to run a program in the SWAC and what it means to run a program at the SEC level. And I think that that bias, it might even be bias. Like maybe maybe they should, maybe more FCS and group of five guys should have a, a chance to make that jump. But I think because there is a hesitation about that, I thought it was less likely for Dion to get a big job and more likely for a program like Colorado, which is like, hey, man, maybe we should roll the dice here to get to, to hire someone like Dion. Colorado is a, that's a that's a no lose situation for them. What's the worst case scenario? I mean, they've already <laughs> the, had the, the, the worst, worst case, case scenario is going on is what they've been the last, you know, however many years. So, uh, you know, I, I, it makes total sense for them. I mean, he may be the only coach in America who they could realistically get. That would make Colorado football interesting again. So it's a no. It's a no. You're right. It's a no lose situation for them. It could be a big lose situation for Auburn if he turns out to be a disaster, and you know you can't afford that in that conference and in that division. Yeah, yeah. You definitely take more chances there. You know, the one thing I remember coming away with from Dion when I when I sat down with him in uh, like whatever it was like May or April or something like that, maybe late March. Can't remember where I was out there in the spring, and. This is the one thing when the Colorado thing came up, I was like, yeah, that makes sense. We had a long part of our discussion was about how when he like he lives in Canton, Mississippi, which I don't know how familiar you are with Mississippi, Stu. But I know I mean, you are <laughs> intimately familiar yeah. with Mississippi. Like, I'm not like it's a it's, it's a it's a clip from Jackson. Like you got to drive a little bit to get from Jackson State to Canton. And it's a little bit like and you can get some land in Canton. And that's what he has. I haven't been there, but he was describing like he's got some land. And he said like, you know, when he was a player, somebody he became friends with sort of showed him like, hey, like you got to have like you got to have some space. You got to get away from it all. And like he says, he really likes like, you know, being at home and getting like having some nature around him. And it made me click in my head. I'm like, you know what? Oh, Colorado would be perfect yeah. for him. Like, I could definitely see him 
being like, oh, yeah, I'm going to get a ranch or I'm going to get a place near the mountains. Well, you're basically right near the mountains. You're in the foothills. So, again, maybe I'm making too much of that, but I just I just. No, that's a tremendous insight. I could not have told you that Coach Prime was a nature lover. Colorado will give him that and more. I mean, everything you could possibly want of beauty and in the world and space. Absolutely. Yeah. He just talked about like, when I go home, I want to feel away from it all. You know, I want to have, I want to see, you know, I want to see things. I want to see, I want to have mm-hmm. space and I want to have a view and I want to maybe live near some water and things along You know where you lines. can't get away from things? Auburn. It, that's a good point. I mean, <laughs> it is pretty. Auburn's got that lake and it is pretty at Auburn, but yes, it's a little harder to get away from it all. And you definitely can at Colorado. Okay. So let me, let me hit on a couple of others here. Um, and then we'll switch to Stanford in a second. Just we'll, we'll, we'll do this relatively briefly. Who did better, Wisconsin or Nebraska? I think we everybody, both think highly of Rule and Fickle, but do you do you think everybody that? keeps asking that question? I don't have a great answer. Yeah, I, think I don't know if I do both either. Great. Um, I think that I give a slight edge to Wisconsin, just a slight edge, just because I give their AD Chris McIntosh a lot of credit for not doing the easy thing. That it seemed like maybe it was all a smokescreen that they were just going to promote Jim Leonard and and continue the, you know, keep it in the family kind of thing. And instead, you go out and get a coach who I have as much respect for as almost any coach in the country, taking Cincinnati. I mean, you know, Bruce was countering this and saying, well, Brian Kelly did well there and Butch Jones did well there. None of them took Cincinnati to the college football playoff as a group of five team. Um, it's a phenomenal hire. Matt Rule is also a phenomenal hire. Because you, he has the exact background and experience with turning around programs that Nebraska needs. I think we can both agree that Nebraska is a much bigger rebuilding job than Wisconsin. So they kind of both got what they needed, but maybe a little bit more. Like we could have predicted Matt Rule to Nebraska the day they fired Scott Frost. Um, or the day he got fired by the Panthers, I should say. Uh Nobody saw Fickle to Wisconsin coming. Yeah, I would push back on the rule thing just a little bit because I think there was a clear question about whether the Nebraska job was good enough for him to come back to. I think that there was because he didn't, you know, he didn't have to rush back. He had the big buyout uh, from the Panthers. I think that there was a lot of thought that, hey, you know, maybe Matt sits out one year and you see what happens next year. Maybe, you know, maybe. I think that was definitely part of his thought process. And I think. Oh, no doubt. I don't know if he turned them down originally, but he wasn't. From what I understand, Nebraska reached out to him. There were some conversations, and we thought that was that. And then, but Trev Alberts thought, this is my guy. And they went back to him with a big, sweet offer, and, and now he's there. So, you know, I, I think. I think they found the right guy. I, I, th- I, I said that about Scott Frost, too. <laughs> no, Well, yeah, so I, I think I was one of the few people who had a little more skepticism about Frost, even though I thought it was a, it was a made a logical hire. I just thought, hey, man, this guy's only been a head coach for a couple of years. Like, maybe we should see a little more of him. Um, but, again, it made logical sense that, that the – that Nebraska would go after him. I don't know. Yeah, I'm with you. I don't know if I have a good answer as who did better. I think they both did really well. My guess is I would probably say I think Rule, I think Nebraska may have done better because I don't know if Nebraska hadn't gotten Rule if it would have been able to get Fickle because I think they were they had interest in Fickle too. 
And I don't know. So I don't know where Nebraska would have gone without rule. Like I just the, the other possibilities of like where you go next didn't look nearly as good to me. So I think that's like I thought keeping Jim Leonard actually seemed like a reasonable solution for me at Nebraska, excuse me, at Wisconsin. So if they would have ended up on Jim Leonard, if Fickle had said no, I think that would have been not a bad move. Like I just think that the fall from rule to whatever else with Nebraska was going to get might have been more problematic. So I'll give Nebraska a slight edge, I guess, as far as that's concerned. Let's talk about Stanford. Okay. Um, because you had a big story in the works, and, and it actually you know hit it published, I think, Monday. We're, we're talking on Tuesday. It published this past Monday about what happened to Stanford football. And um, you went to Stanford on Saturday because you were trying to get a little color, and then what happened? <laughs> what happened was the scenario that I, my editors and I had actually feared for weeks, but I still didn't believe what actually happened. Uh, we were at this post-game press conference, and just for you know, a little perspective, there aren't many reporters cover that cover a Stanford game. So I want to say there were maybe four or five of us. They still have in that uh, sort of tent area. No, they actually built um, like a more permanent facility okay. where the locker rooms are on the bottom floor and the media is okay. on the top floor. Okay. So I mean, it's a big room that you know we were using maybe six seats out of. Um, there were more people from the athletic department in that room than there were in the press conference or, you know, reporters. And I mean, it took him an hour to come in and, uh, and it's late, right? It's midnight uh, on the, on the West coast. And the longer it went on, the more I was like, something's going on. Like I could see Bernard Muir, the AD pacing in the back of the room and then going out into the hallway. And yet, even then it came, I just, he, the way, he, I think it's more the way he said it. He comes in and he. It wasn't the talking. first thing he said. Like he, no, he came in and he's talking about the BYU game that just happened. And all this. It was for the 18th straight, you know, Stanford game talking about which players got injured, and then he just, without warning, goes. So I just told the uh, players uh, in the locker room that this was my uh, last game at Stanford. Um, it was a great 18 or 16 years, and it's like, um, I think I need to tweet that. <laughs> He just announced that was his last game. Uh, and so obviously, you know, this story that I've been working on for a while had to be drastically recast because now it was not, you know, what are they going to do? It's uh, it, it happened. David Shaw is not the coach anymore. Um, but I still I, I still think it was important to tell the story that really has gone completely under the radar because, again, nobody really pays attention to Stanford. How did this program that for years they were going at Rose Bowls. They were churning out NFL players. Uh, everybody admired David Shaw. You know, he definitely was considered one of the most respected coaches in the country. And then starting in 2019, it just all fell apart. And um, any other, you know, any other pro program, he would have been fired last year uh, when they'd gone four and eight and three and nine. Uh, but he made it back to this year. There was never, he would, if he wanted to keep coaching next year, he could have, they were never going to fire him. Um, and so kind of, you know, peeling back the onion about how it all went so wrong. So I have to add my experience for Saturday night because I was not at Stanford, but in many ways I was also with Stu, but I had a little different perspective. So it's 
2.40 a.m. And I pretty much said, okay, I'm done for the night, but I'm in New York. I'm actually on my – I wasn't at any games. I, I didn't go to any games last week. I watched Covering college football on East Coast time stinks. It really does. <laughs> it's, it's a different different topic, but but it can yeah. be. Yes, it can be terrible. So I um, – you know, I'm I'm wrapping up. All the games are done. I've done my wrap up column. I'm getting my six, my four or five hours, six hours of sleep before I get to get up the next day and do the uh, and start working on poll stuff and Sunday and coaching changes and things like that. And I get a text from Ace uh, AP reporter in the Bay Area, Josh Dubow, who um, who covered the game, and he texts me. Hey, and this is what was surprised me because I think Josh had gotten a may have gotten a little bit of a heads up, not a tip like, hey, we have a story I can run to the wire. But I think he gave me the impression that somebody told him, hey, man, could be some news coming. Right. And he surmised what the news was going to be. So he texts me. Like and you know so without getting too deep inside baseball, it's a little easier for me to start writing the story while like the background of David Shaw is going to retire while Josh is in this press conference room. It's a little harder for him to do that writing because he also doesn't know any second now Shaw could walk in. So I tell yeah. Josh like, hey, I'm going to put your byline and a story on the wire, blah blah blah, and. Um, I'll have it all set to go. Just, you know, slack me as soon as it happens. And as soon as he did, we put a news alert on the wire and, you know, 15, you know, a minute later, we had 400 words about David Shaw, you know, announcing his retirement. So at, and by the way, it was after three in the morning. Cause you're right at that it was point, three 30 AM Eastern. Yeah. In fact, Josh text, uh, slacked me at one point. I think this is Shaw's revenge for all the late games that they've had, which have <laughs> we were joking about off. that. We were, you know, uh, one of their media relations people, you know, they weren't letting on. They were just like, you know, thanks for your patience. And I joked like, Hey, this is his, he's trying to make his point yet again about how ridiculously late these kickoffs are. <laughs> So, yeah, that's how I experienced it and why I went to bed at like four in the morning that night. Uh, luckily, again, Josh sort of took took it home from there. But it was easier to be a two man job as far as filing stuff to the wire, um, as opposed to you, who wrote a story that didn't even post until six in the morning. You know, un unlike us, we can't do that with the wire. Somebody no. somewhere, there's a paper open that hasn't that hasn't gone to deadline and they want that thing or they just want it on the uh, they just want it on their Internet sites the way it's, the way it works these days. So, so yeah, you know, so that that's the way the mechanics of that night worked. And then Stu and I ex had a text exchange prompted by me where I was just like, there's something about like what has happened to Stanford that makes me sad. Now, I have no allegiances to Stanford. Trust me, I could never have gotten in there. And I grew up on the East Coast. But when they were really good for the period where you talked about where they were winning Rose Bowls and, and winning Pac-12 championships, I did cover and go out there a couple of times. And trust me, they don't care as much. I understand that. They definitely do not care as much about their football at Stanford as they do in many other places in the country. But in some ways, when they were doing well, they, it was something almost refreshing about being on that campus, and it was very well kept in perspective, right? The fans would show up and be very happy if they won, and if they lost, well, that sucks, but everything will be fine tomorrow. And I don't necessarily want all college football fans to be like that, 
But I like the fact that there was a place where they could do very well and people weren't totally maniacal and sort of living their lives through the team. And it was super impressive to talk to their players and super impressive to just be on this campus and to think that they could balance this elite academic institution with this very good football team. It was just it had a place in college football that was unique for those years. And I think it's sad that that has gone away. And I hope and Shaw thinks it can. And I think it'll be it'll be tricky, but I do. I just would like it to come back. So I found what has happened, the demise of Stanford, to be a little sad because it represented something that was unlike anything else in college football for a few years. Yeah, and for me, selfishly, um, it was great when they. I moved, actually moved out here from New York uh, in 2011. Andrew Luck's last season, David Shaw's first season at Stanford. And, you know, for about a five-year run there, there were so many times that I could just drive 15, 20 minutes over to campus and cover, you know, number three Oregon versus number five Stanford, right? You guys would all be in town. It was the game of the week. And obviously that that didn't happen as much down the stretch. I mean, um, and also extremely accessible program. They welcomed the coverage, Um you know, so it's kind of selfishly great that they were that they were really good. But you're right. I mean, you know, it can be cliche. I mean, I don't know how many stories people wrote of like following Andrew Luck around campus, going to his architecture classes. You know, it's 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 the the idea that these guys are real students. Um, but it was true. Uh, I saw it with my own eyes. So, um, you know, it's sad. It's also sad that. Um. You know, David Shaw is somebody that's hard not to like, you know, super nice guy, super thoughtful, um, just just a lot different than your typical college football coach. Right. But as things started to go bad, it kind of became obvious to me that he just thought, well, you know, I know better. Yeah, you know, everybody's like, you got to fire your your coaches. No, I don't. Um, you know, your offense is really outdated. You're, you probably shouldn't be the play caller. Those people have no idea what they're talking about. Right. Well, it was so always by... somewhat admirable, his his stance with the coaches, because his idea was, no, that's passing off blame. If I fire right. them, just get rid of me. Now, again, it's framed in an admirable way, but ultimately it, it also could be seen as being stubborn. Well, I think you can get away with that for one year. Like every year we do the state of the program series on the athletic, right? We do these big, long, they're basically season previews, but they go a little deeper than that. And I would always do Stanford's because I'm here. And it kind of became a running thing, right? Like every spring I would be like, so why didn't you make any coaching changes this year? <laughs> well, my dad, he's, you know, his dad was a longtime assistant coach. My dad always calls those firings of convenience, you know, and your scapegoating guys. And the first year I was like, yeah, okay. But when they went three and nine last year and he didn't make a single change and, you know, because they can't use the transfer portal, which I go into a lot in that story. It basically just brought back the same roster with the same coaching staff, hoping for better results. And I, I knew, I, I mean, you know, we all try to guess how a team's going to do, but that one I knew for sure, like they're going to be really bad. And then you were going to end up in the situation that they ended up in where um, their fan, fan base, especially, and I talked to some, some big time donors, you know, were just so fed up. I mean, this, there was a donor named Tony Joseph I and mean, he did it on the record. So I can say it. Uh, he, I don't know exactly how much he gives the athletic department, but enough that the 
you know, like David Shaw is the Bradford M. Freeman right, right. football coach. Right. The basketball coach is the Tony Joe Ann and Tony Joseph basketball coach, right? I would assume that requires a big check. And he's like, I said, well, why aren't you guys doing like an NIL collective for them for football? He's like, why would I, why would I support that? Those guys aren't even trying, you know, they're not even making it to, why would we even try that? So like they had, they had just were so fed up with him. And um, I think there's a lot of relief on all sides that David Shaw decided to just take the, the matter into his own hands because they weren't going to fire him. Who knows if he would have finally made staff changes or not. And if he hadn't, if it was status quo going, going to next year, there would be zero people in the stands. So my last thing on Shaw, and I don't think it's a hopeless situation at Stanford. It's going to be tricky, but just as you said, there's money there. So if you want to do NIL stuff, like you can do, you can, there's more than enough wealthy people who are related in some way to Stanford. Uh, transfer stuff is going to be a little different um, because there's academic things. But, you know, again, Bernard Muir and Shaw have said that they think that there are ways to accommodate, to be a little more accommodating to transfers. We'll see. This is my question to you because I tweeted this and I, I'm just, in, I'll, I'll be interested to see your reaction to it because it sort of leads into what you said of what, the, where, how we got here with Shaw, which is maybe a little too set in his ways. In some ways, I look at David Shaw and think this is the guy who could be the czar of college football. He is always very big picture and thoughtful. We would have conversations. He would come on this show and we would be able to talk about issues and he would remove himself from his Stanford bubble and be able to talk about things, you know, a little more broadly. So in many ways, I think he would be a like he could be conceived as someone who would be a good czar of college football. I'm not sure if that's ever going to happen, but maybe he would be that way. But then the other part of my tweet was, I'm not sure he wants to lead college football in the direction it wants to be led. Do you think Shaw could be a person who has a role in the bigger picture of college football? Or do you just think he ends up coaching somewhere again? I mean, I guess I would ask you, like, what, what we always joke about, like, oh, college football needs a commissioner or a czar, but like, what actual real life role would he be able to do that from? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think in a in a changed and reformed NCAA where the oversight committees are more empowered to take on a role of, you know, what the playoff looks like and things along those lines. Again, we're thinking we're 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 talking very theoretical. Here. Yeah, very very yeah, theoretical. I, I, here. I think that you know, if you heard or read his comments from the press conference, uh, both more so the one after the game than the one on Monday, he's you could tell he's really. I think he's really soured on college football. Um, I think he at least caught coaching college football, like the fact that there's no off season, the fact that, you know, he said other teams have been trying to poach players off his roster. Um, and so he's always kind of had, to me, he's always kind of had one foot in the NFL, right? He does the NFL network uh, draft coverage. He uh, is constantly referencing the NFL. He's obviously got a lot of his former players in the NFL. If I had to guess, if he, goes back into coaching I think it would be in some sort of NFL role um if he doesn't go back into coaching 
I mean, I could see I could see him being like a regular analyst on the NFL Network, not just on draft day. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, we'll see. I think he he seemed pretty set on I'm going to take a year off and be with my family. Um, but he also said in the Monday morning press conference, he made made a flat out said, like, I am not retiring. Yes. Yeah. So um, and, and, you know, these coaches, like once they get away from it, they can't. Chris Peterson may be the first coach in history to step away from coaching and go. Yeah, I have no interest in that anymore. <laughs> but of course, his um, name has come up for who might be the next coach. At he Stanford. will not. He will not be the next coach at Stanford. I don't think he'll ever be a college head coach again. Um, Good for him. I, but David Shaw, who knows? Yeah. Like, could he be tempted next? You know what, David Shaw would, would. I mean, he could come back as an Ivy League head coach. You know, like yeah. He, yeah. Who's to say it has to be a Power Five head coaching job? Yeah. Yeah. Um, an interesting guy, an interesting time, and and definitely in some ways. Uh, the book closing on this era of Stanford in some ways is uh, indicative of the book closing on a certain era of college football as we enter a new era of college football. Don't poke fun at me for being a gadget guy. You want lemon zest? I've got a zester. Capping spark plugs? Let me grab my spark plug gauge. And for sure, I'm a Regions app guy when I need to check balances, deposit checks, make transfers, or make an appointment. Regions tech is always at my fingertips. You need anytime access to your accounts. Regions gets it. So switch to Regions Life Green Checking for our highly rated app, online tools, and personal service that helps you live in the moment. Visit Regions.com to learn more. Regions Bank member FDIC, equal housing lender. Okay, so we got the coaching stuff out of the way. There are monster games this weekend. It's the uh, championship weekend. But to a certain degree, there are there is a little, I don't know, a little less drama. <laughs> I mean, you know, it, could we, be, it could be kind of anticlimactic, if we're being honest. Well, do you, so I believe Georgia, Michigan, and TCU are in, should be in. I agree. I, I, agree. I, I, I know that there's a lot of skepticism around the committee's treatment of TCU, but I think that if you just pull back a little bit and start looking at what a loss by TCU looks like and what the alternatives are, I just I just can't see the committee going there. I, I just don't. I just don't see the committee going there. So it looks I think Kansas State would have to just blow them off the field for yeah. them to have that reservation, right? Because one thing that's interesting about TCU is they've already beaten everybody in their conference. Yeah. So, you know, I don't even know how you can really dock them if they lose to K State because they already beat K State. Yeah, they didn't have the the marquee non-conference victory because their because their big non-conference big quote-unquote non-conference game was against Colorado, so obviously that's not helping them. But, you know, SMU's a solid G5 team, so even that like their non-conference is better than Michigan's, you know, simply by playing SMU it's better than Michigan's. Yeah. Um though I guess UConn became feisty. Uh, so if those three are in and we all think those three are in, then it comes down to will USC make it a really easy night and we'll, we could know going into Saturday, right? Because USC and Utah play in the Pac-12 championship on Friday. USC wins. I think we're set. Maybe TCU falls to four if it loses. Um, so the question becomes more about we're recording this before the rankings come out tonight. And maybe they are significant, but I think it's just going to be Ohio State at number five and waiting in the on-deck circle to see if USC loses. Can you make a case for Alabama, Tennessee, as having still a, still having a chance here? I mean, I could make a, a case, and I think a valid one, that Tennessee should be ahead of Alabama. But given that they were they dropped them three spots behind them last week, I don't I don't know how they would justify then you know 
moving them back up. On Saturday, as all the craziness was happening and, and they were dropping like flies, I did for, I would say, about two hours be like, oh, yeah, Alabama, they're going to put Alabama back in, right? Alabama's the, the, the never has nine lives, right? They never die. And then the next day, as I was looking at it, like, yeah, they don't have any case over Ohio State. I mean, they, they really don't, right? They don't have, not just that they have an extra loss. I mean, they didn't beat a team the caliber of Penn State. And in fact, when all was said and done, like, they didn't beat a team that finished better than eight and four. So I think you're right. I think, you know, Ohio State will be waiting in the wings. And then the question is, if USC loses, is it automatic that Ohio State goes in? Um, if it were your AP poll, right? No question. They would, USC would drop. Ohio State would move up. The committee is supposed to be a little more nuanced than that. And, you know, Dan Wetzel made this case. Yeah, our buddy Dan Wetzel was the one. I thought I thought he did a good job explaining yeah, it. Yeah, he's like, if go. those are the four best teams through 12 weeks and USC is going to go play an extra game, but Ohio State's not, like, why Why should the order change? You know, if that's who you what you thought. Um, like, it's one thing if a team outside the top four plays their way into it. But if they just get in by by literally having not reached their conference championship game and not having to play another game, that's definitely some faulty logic. That being said, it has happened before, right? So um, you'd almost be reinventing the rules if you said that's not allowed to happen because it definitely happened with Alabama in 2017. Um, they uh, moved in over two teams that lost in the conference title game. So if we're just going by precedent i think that ohio state would get in over them and i think the committee would use the you know let's just if utah beats usc i'm guessing it's not going to be like 20 to 17 so they would use the reasoning of we just think usc is not good on defense i mean even the notre dame game they weren't that good on defense what they do is they get turnovers um i think that would be their rationalization or they would say hey you know they got a second we wanted to see if they could beat utah avenge their utah loss and they didn't um, so yeah, I think we might be down to just two possibilities. So my fear here, well, and listen, USC is a two and a half point favorite. That's not much. That makes it almost a toss up game on a neutral that field. That surprises me. Yeah, it doesn't that much. Cause if you look at like, you know, SP plus and some of the other metrics out there, which, which tend to have a little bit of a Vegas flip, cause that's Vegas is using that Vegas is using forward yeah forward-facing, forward-looking power rankings. And, you know, SP Plus, I think, has this as a toss-up, maybe like half-point uh, Utah even as favorite. So, I don't know, man. I just—the Pac-12 never has nice things, Stu. I just—I <laughs> I can't— like, No, just, I, I agree. That's where I, that I am on this, true. right? <laughs> Look, I said before this stretch started, there's no way USC— Me too. —going to win back to—with that defense is going to be able to beat— UCLA, Notre Dame, and whoever emerged in the title game back to back to back. But I just think that they've really hit their stride. You know, you, you, they're just, they're fully formed now and they're riding such momentum and they're playing the team. Like, you know, they're going to be out for blood, you know, against the team that beat them. The other thing is, okay, you're telling me the metrics say Utah is amazing. I disagree. Well, I didn't say they were amazing, but I, I think they think they are the equal of USC is what they think they are. Yeah, yeah. Well, what I would say to that is look at Utah at home versus Utah on the road, right? Good at point. home, they they beat USC, right? Good good for them. They blew out an Oregon State team that ended up going 9-3. and three. 
Um, now let's look at the road. Lost at Florida, who ended up going six and six. Lost by double digits to UCLA. Um, squeaked out a win on the road against Washington State and lost at Oregon. Yeah. So you're getting Utah on a not in the the confines of Rice Eccles against a really hot USC team. Yeah. Which is a great we'll see, at, great atmosphere. Possible. Rice Rice Eccles is a, is a tough place to play. Oh, it's it a is, very tough place to play. Yeah, I, I, you know, Pac-12 places get a little bit of the short shrift there as far as how difficult they are. But Rice Eccles is probably as good as Autzen as far as like the the most the toughest places to play there. So that's a good point, Stu. I, I guess I hadn't thought of that again. My my, my feeling is. I still just keep going, going back to this is too good to be true for the Pac-12. It is. And, right? and, well, but and, it is and it isn't, Ralph. The good news for them is they'd end their six-year playoff drought. The bad news is the, the team that did it is leaving. It is a Big Ten year. team. Is <laughs> right? a, um, a Big Ten team. You know, and that's a whole other story. Like, you know, it's hard to believe on June 30th, the Big Ten adding USC and UCLA is, you know, big deal, right? But no, no, let me re- let me rewind. The SEC, it's like, holy cow, they're going to Oklahoma on top of all those great teams they already have. And then the Big Ten, it's like, well, USC has been bad for a while, right? So Mm -hmm. we don't know how they'll do in the Big Ten. The fact that USC looks like now they're going to they're going to go in there. I'm not going to say equal to Ohio State, Michigan yet, but like a factor, a national factor. And Oklahoma is going to go into the well, it's a few years away still, but. Right now, I wouldn't have a lot of confidence uh, of what they're going to be going to the SEC. It's just completely flipped. It does feel like USC is is just sort of scratching the surface here, though, right? Because like like they are recruiting well, too. It's not going to be the portal all-stars every year. And if you can do the portal thing and the high-level USC old, you know, Pete Carroll-style recruiting, now all of a sudden it's like, wow, like— like what is the what is the ceiling here heading into the the Pac-10? Here's here, excuse me the Big Ten. So here's the the last thing for you, Stu. Does does USC have to win for Caleb Williams to win the Heisman? Because let me just leave it at that. I'll give you my answer. But does does USC have to win the game for Caleb to win the Heisman? I don't I don't know for sure, but I. I mean, the, the 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 finalists for all the national awards came out today, and Max Duggan is nowhere to be found. So, if if let's say Caleb Williams loses, that opens the door for somebody who has a great game on Saturday to win it. But Max Duggan's the only like semi realistic one who's playing on That's Saturday. That's it. Yeah, exactly, point. exactly. And it just doesn't seem like people believe in him. Um, and I don't know that you know putting on a showcase against number twelve K State is going to do that. So. Um, it's not like Lamar Jackson, you know, remember how he had it so wrapped up that it didn't even matter what he did down the stretch. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's like that, but it seems like it's going to be, it's going to take some unusual circumstances for him to lose it. What do you think? Yeah, I think he, I think they could lose the game and if he plays well and I can't, I almost can't see a possibility where he plays so poorly that it reflects so badly against him, just from what you're saying, go, who are the alternatives and the fact that, like, CJ is not playing and Hendon Hooker is right. hurt. So, like, who else has a chance to take it away? Duggan would clearly be, I think, the guy who has a chance to, sl- to slide in there. But I don't think it's contingent on a on a victory because I think what people will say is what has been the case all season. Wow, like, that team can't stop anybody. What would they be without Caleb Williams? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. like if it wasn't for Caleb in the offense, we're not even talking about them. So I could see a scenario where he plays well enough 
they lose and people are, and you still go, listen, this is the best player and look at what he did to turn USC around. And so I think that there's leeway there for him to play okay, they lose and still win. That that's where I think. I, I don't think it's it's as clear cut as like if they lose, he's out. I think he could I think his performance is more important toward the Heisman than the result of the game. He's really only had one bad game all year, and that was at Oregon State in that uh, weird – somehow that game ended up on the Pac-12 network. Um, and he did he lead really, the lead a late scoring drive in that game. He did. Even with his that. His stats from that game yes. were pretty bad. Yeah. He, and he, ever he, since then, it's just been one great performance after another. So I I don't know. I, it's hard for me at this moment to see a scenario where he doesn't win it. So are you? So you're predicting USC to win this game? I'm predicting USC to win it handily. Um, okay. All right. I'm just not impressed with Utah this year, but um, there will be a lot of Utah fans there. Like they, they, they'll be, they'll be there. Um, and you know, you give credit to you. This is their fourth pack. Oh, yeah, and I thought that they were going to fall off. I know they got a lot of buzz and you especially were on that, that train heading into the season with a top five or six ranking and AP had them very high, but I was a little skeptical that like, you know, your Utah, like to, to repeat your greatest season ever, just come back and do it again or one of your greatest seasons ever. That's hard. That's that's hard at a place like like Utah. Well, Tavian Thomas hardly plays this year because he had off the field and health issues and like like things go wrong. And the fact that like they did regress a little bit, but were still good enough to be this good is super impressive. Just could not. They, Kyle Whittingham is is just a great coach, and they have a great. They just have a great program out there. Can I bring up a quick hypothetical? Sure. If Cam Rising's pass into the end zone at Florida doesn't get picked, mm. and they win that game, and they're ten and two going into this game, is the Pac-12 title game a play in? I would have argued yes, because but I always am a little biased towards putting conference champions in. I've always been that way. And which, again, why it's so distasteful for me to even think about Ohio State and and Alabama in this conversation, even though they would be a default in this conversation. But, yes, I am always going to be looking for who is the best conference champion, who's the team playing on those days, because I do think it's a benefit to not play, like just to be sitting out and having things fall to you is a benefit. So, yes, I'll say yes. Others will disagree with me. I think they would because – It'd be different if Ohio State had lost on a last-second field goal. The fact that they got their butts kicked on their home field and Michigan didn't even have their best player, it's just it's, it's one of these losses that the committee – I mean, I'm very curious to see tonight. Who knows? Maybe they will fall behind Alabama. Maybe they'll say, you know, Alabama's losses were both at the last second and, and Ohio State got embarrassed on their home field. Yeah. Um, I just hate you – know, I hate the argument of our losses are better. Like that always doesn't. That never. Sits well, that when well, that's your me. best case, right? Yeah, like, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's that's all the entirety of Alabama's case. We lost close games. It's like, it's like the uh, 2022 equivalent of Les Miles saying we were undefeated in regulation. <laughs> um, it, that's that's a problem. Also, just eyeball test, right? Alabama is not as good as they have been. So they could have easily lost a couple more uh, last second games, but. Um, yeah, if if USC loses, like the committee is going to have to take take somebody that whose profile is something they've always hated. They obviously have never put a two loss team in, and they hate big lopsided losses. So we'll see. 
Stuart Mandel, you can find him at The Athletic. You can listen to him and my friend and our friend, Bruce Feldman, on The Audible uh, twice a week. That's their podcast. Stu, man, thank you so much for taking the time and rolling through all this today. And maybe I will see you at a playoff game or in Las Vegas next week or somewhere, hopefully somewhere, or or in the championship Well, I'm going to be in Las Vegas on Friday night. Are you you getting out there? No, no, I won't be there for the game. I'm actually going in next week for the other events out there. Uh, and then, you know, playoff games and maybe, at, if nothing else, the national championship game. I will see you at the national championship game. Will I not? Of course. Okay. So at the very least, we will see each other in person at the national championship game. So Mandel, thank you so much today. Thanks, Ralph. And now, three and out. First down. Quick follow-up on our Dion Sanders conversation, possibly going to Colorado. If a school that has had an opening for a while, has not made a hire by now, it is showing its hand by waiting. The season is over for most coaches. Obviously, that's why Luke Fickle is at Wisconsin and freeze to Auburn. Those things were wrapped up pretty quickly. Once the coach has no more meaningful games left, schools are going to make their moves. If Colorado wanted to hire Ryan Walters, the D.C. at Illinois, or former BYU and Virginia coach Bronco Mendenhall, That could have been done by now. In fact, right as I was recording this, I had to stop because Georgia Tech promoted Brent Key. Why? Because the school decided it didn't want to wait a few more days while Willie Fritz coached Tulane in the AAC championship game. With the portal about to open and signing day around the corner, you can't wait unless you really want someone who is coaching championship weekend. So if CU hasn't hired a coach by the time you listen this, who are they waiting for? Second down, the turnover in the AAC, including incoming schools, is going to be pretty significant this offseason. Tulsa opened up this weekend, as did Cincinnati, joining USF. Looks like Tulane's going to be okay with Willie Fritz. Right after the news broke about Georgia Tech, Troy Dannon, the Tulane AD, tweeted out a statement saying Fritz had informed the school that he was staying put. Of the incoming schools, Charlotte has made its hire in Michigan staffer Biff Pogee. FAU is open. UAB is still open. Actually, a little surprise on that one, but then it hit Twitter today that the players sent a letter to the president of the school pushing for interim coach Bryant Vincent to get the job. The Blazers went 6-6, six and six, and I think heading into a new league, they have their sight sets a little higher. We'll see how that plays out. I know North Texas is in the CUSA championship game this week, but I'm still not 100% sure Seth Luttrell comes back. He has only one year left on his contract. The opening that didn't happen might be the most surprising in the AAC. Memphis is bringing back Ryan Silverfield after a second straight 6-6 season. Silverfield followed Mike Norvell and went 8-3 and three in year one, which was the COVID season and a messy season at that for Memphis. It was having a hard time piecing a team together. The problem, of course, is two 6-6 six six seasons since then. Several schools are looking at the post-Cincinnati, UCF, and Houston AAC and thinking we should shoot to the top. Memphis is number one on that list. Silverfield is going to get a chance to be the guy that brings them there, but it's pretty likely he'll only get one more chance next season. 
third down. Didn't make picks for the championship games this week yet, so here goes. Okay, I picked K-State to win the Big 12 before the season and have been riding this Big 12 volatility train for about a month now, and TCU keeps defying it. However, I'll take the Wildcats to spring the upset in Arlington, Texas this weekend and make me look smart, though I do not have a ton of confidence about that pick because it's hard to go against the Hypnotoads. I was all ready to take North Carolina to upset Clemson, but the Tar Heels haven't looked like much the last couple of weeks. I think Dabo can play the us-against-them, us-against-the-world card now with his struggling team and win another ACC title. I'll take chalk in SEC and Big Ten, of course. In the AAC, which we just mentioned, I'll go with another pick I made in the preseason, which was UCF. A reminder again, we are recording this before the rankings come out Tuesday night. One thing to keep an eye out in those rankings, does UTSA get ranked? And are the Roadrunners positioned in a way that they could jump the AAC champ? Well, really not the AAC champ, UCF, if it wins the AAC. Tulane would get the the New Year's Six bid no matter what if they won. But could the Roadrunners jump UCF by winning the Conference USA title and end up in a New Year's Six Bowl? Not just a New Year's Six Bowl, but the Cotton Bowl in Dallas. Pretty good spot for a team from San Antonio. I'm skeptical of that. And I think beating Tulane twice and Cincinnati will be enough to get UCF in over a UTSA team that lost both of its big non-conference games against Houston and Texas. You know, had the Roadrunners beaten Houston in overtime in their opener, this might be a very different conversation. As for the Pac-12, where all eyes will be, as I said with Stu, the conference just can't seem to catch a break. So I'll go with Utah to beat USC. That would most likely put Ohio State in the playoff with a shot at redemption. That's not exactly the story I'm hoping for because I think it's far more interesting to see what happens with USC. But again, until the Pac-12 can break this jinx, it's hard for me to back that. That is the show for today. I'd like to thank my producer, John Radcliffe, for making me sound good. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, just about anywhere you like to get your pods. Please follow so you don't miss an episode. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. Come back for more next week of the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast.